Welcome to Phantom Podcast Network. This is Legal Mullet Podcast, a celebration of 1980s action cinema. Celebrating the heroes of yesterday, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Bruce Willis, Van Damme, all the way down to, of course, the big, great action films that we all enjoyed on VHS, and of course, Peter Max, with the lows of American Ninja, all the way through to Cyborg Cop and Beyond. Here at Phantom Podcast Network's Legal Wallet Podcast, join Adam O'Brien as we celebrate action movie cinema. Hey guys, how you doing? This is the one, the only Lethal Mullet, brought to you by Phantom Podcast Network. Episode number 36, folks, and I'm your host, Adam O'Brien, and coming to you live from Quinlan's Cantina in the Gold Coast of Australia, here to chat a really, really fun movie tonight, one that I think a lot of you that grew up in the 80s have enjoyed and probably watched a thousand times, like myself and my co-host tonight, all the way, of course, from now, Santa Barbara and SoCal, that's right, Southern California to you Americans over there, the one, the only, Kevin, the Raider Nerd, Reitzel. Buddy, how you going? Hey, man, uh, thanks for welcoming me back. I love always talking uh, action movies here on Lethal, man, so I'm excited. How you doing? I'm doing really well. And I hear that um, you've, you've made the move, as we mentioned in the previous show, to Santa Barbara. And, of course, being in this area, you didn't have a cold Christmas. <laughs> no. We just had a chilly one. We didn't have a cold <laughs> one. But yeah, I, I've, I moved from, uh, in the beginning of July, I moved from uh, Georgia, where I've been for like the last 12 years, and I moved uh, back to my home state and my hometown of Santa Barbara, California. How good is that? Now, obviously, folks, uh, you know, out here in Australia, we've seen a lot of American uh, Christmas films and probably, you know, yeah, holiday movies that you get. And, of course, we're used to the ones that are set more in the east. So New York, yeah, New Jersey, New Jersey, all that sort of stuff. And um, one of the interesting things, we always think of uh, snow and stuff like that as being part of the experience. But it's interesting that, you, you know, the environment in Santa Barbara is very much like Queensland, I think, for uh, when it comes to winter. Yeah, my uh, fiance Erin, who lives in Melbourne, Australia, is from there. Uh, she, there's a lot of uh, similarities that she uh, likes about this this area, um, um, somewhere that remind her of home. Oh, definitely. Now, folks, tonight we've got a really fun movie to chat about. It's a, a bit of a buddy cop classic. This is one that um, has just about every famous actor or character actor from the 1980s in. That is, of course, the one, the only Warner Brothers film. Tango and Cash, starring Sylvester Stallone and Kurt Russell. I mean, this is this is the be-all and end-all of buddy cop movies, isn't it, mate? Yeah, it, this movie's 30 years old now, dude. How weird is that? You know, it uh, came out in uh, 89, and then we just finished with 19, 19, um, or 2019. Uh, but what's interesting about this film is that it was originally supposed to be released, I think, in the summertime, but it got delayed. There was some production issues and uh, switch it director towards the end of filming and all this kind of stuff. But it was released on Christmas mm-hmm. in 1989, which makes this probably the last 80s action film. It really is. And, I mean, this was hotly anticipated film. And here in Australia, I remember the old school. Now, this is, this is going right back, as, as you've mentioned, 30 years ago now, uh, to the movie posters, which... 
We didn't get in Australia, which are, of course, your, your classic ones that you get on the wall and are beautifully done by Drew Struzan and all that sort of stuff. But no, we had artists of our own go up on glass walls and actually paint things up in acrylic paint. And I remember one doing... It had the, the bars of the prison and it had both of the guys, Stallone and Russell, putting their heads through and it said Tango and Cash... <laughs> coming soon and i didn't know what this is going to be i thought is this another Rambo I, I don't movie? know if i i don't know if i've ever seen that poster that's pretty cool no it's, it, the, the great thing about this is this is like artist interpretations back out here you okay. know because a lot of the time the video shops on the outside didn't have like they had with blockbuster with um you know they they had literally just glass windows let everyone come in and you know grab the posters or whatever vice versa but in australia we painted those so the windows were completely filled with acrylic paint. But getting on to that very soon, folks, we're going to be talking about that, what that meant to us, and, of course, we're going to give you all the info and trivia you ever wanted. That's right, all here on the Lethal Muller Podcast. But before we get into that, we're going to let you know how you can catch this show and many others like it on the Phantom Podcast Network. You can catch us, Phantom Podcast Network, the channel itself, on Apple, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and Spotify where you can find this show, The Lethal Mullet Podcast. Make sure you subscribe on any of those platforms where you can find a great podcast. You can catch us also at the Master Feed at fpn.podbean.com, where you'll find this show and every other as well that you're going to be able to download. You can catch the Phantom Podcast Network on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FanPod Network. You can catch me, the host of the show, at, of course, the one, the only at the Lethal Mullet on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And Kevin, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Spartan underscore Phoenix, and of course on Fandom Podcast Network. Awesome. Now, folks, if you do subscribe, you're going to find all the other great shows on the network. You're going to find the Blood of Kings, which is, of course, a Highlander podcast, which Kevin himself hosts. Fantastic show. The weekly uh, pop culture show, Culture Clash. And, of course, a great episode just went out recently in the last couple of days with, of course, the return of the Lau, which was a great episode. Yeah, Norman Lau, our uh, former uh, um, Fandom Podcast Network co-founder who came on and uh, uh, just basically chatted with him, talked about fandom. And uh, we just found out, too, that he is now the new co-host of the very popular and uh, one of the longest Star Trek podcasts called Mission Log. So um, we're very excited for him. And it's almost like Rodbury family because, I mean, Rod works on that one as well, which is – Yeah, Rod Roddenberry uh, produces uh, – it's on the Rod Roddenberry um, podcast network and he produces that, yeah. Yeah, so – and with Norm, obviously, he runs the great um, uh, video cast, which is, of course, called Zocalo. So go and check it out, Zocalo cast, which is uh, – Yeah, the, Babel, the Babylon 5 channel he's got, yeah. It's brilliant. So also you can find Catch Potato Theatre, a look at uh, yesteryear's fantastic classics – Time Warp, which specifically picks one year where they all look at some of the greatest films of those years. There have been some really good shows for that too. We also have The End Zone with that uh, funny football with the helmets and, of course, the shoulder pads and, you know, that, that <laughs> weird fashion sense where they're not man enough to go mano a mano without... Oh. Here we go, here we go. No, I won't do that. But I will ask this, how are the Raiders going? Like, how, How's the competition going over there for our uh, American listeners? Uh, the Raiders did better this year. Uh, they were sniffing the playoffs, but they missed it. 
but they made uh, some uh, good progression when it comes to young players, and they are moving to Las Vegas next year. So we'll have a brand new stadium to call home. I'm excited about that. Nice. And what is it like the Raiders like fans right now? That they're obviously going to be calling it the Las Vegas Raiders now instead of the Oakland. Is that a big thing for the fans themselves? You know, having changing hometowns. <clears throat> It was a sore point for a while, especially a lot of the Oakland fans. But, uh, you know, me being from California where they left Oakland for Los Angeles for a while, then they left Los Angeles to go back to Oakland. Uh, And I've traveled to many places to see the Raiders play, including London. Um, You know, it's called Raider Nation for a reason. Raider fans are everywhere. No matter where they move, um, you'll Mm -hmm. find that the Raider fans are loyal and they will stick with them. That's right. And they're even in Canberra, folks. That's right, in uh, the ACT. (laughs) (laughs) Um, also, you have Good Evening, uh, which is a fantastic show about Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, I've actually listened to a couple of the episodes now and really getting a bit of a sense that Alfred Hitchcock has pretty much influenced everybody. So go and check out that show. It really is a well, uh, you know, it's an education in Hitchcock. Uh, the Union Federation podcast covering everything Star Trek Discovery and, of course, Orville and, of course, the Hair well, Metal podcast. Just, just to clarify, the Union uh the Union Federation covers all Star Trek and, of course, um, the Orville. So we're going to be covering Picard, too, exclusively. Interplexing beacons and all. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the Hair Metal Show, which uh, actually, you know, I've got to say, like, we're learning a lot more about uh, not just, like, the, you had an episode looking at Guns and Roses and how L.A. Guns really was a big, uh, you know, founding point for a lot of those members. Yes, definitely, yeah, yeah. Um, it, there's so much history when it comes to those bands and during during that uh, hard rock in eighties so there was a lot of turnover and then some members went to other you know bands and became popular it was It was a very exciting time it was huge all right folks we're going to get into of course our main chat here now and of course Tango and Cash is just one of those movies you're always uh, able to put on and enjoy and if you do see it on t v it's very rarely that you're going to swap over the channel on my free web. This is a movie that really, in 1989, set the pace when it came to Buddy Cop. We've had Lethal Weapon. We've had other movies like that. You know, we've even had comedies that tried to do the action thing. But this really is an action comedy, 50-50, I think. Um, You know, I think it really fits down the line like that. It basically starred Sylvester Stallone, Kurt Russell. The bad guy in this was Jack Palance. And, of course, we had Terry Hatcher. That's right. Terry, Terry. Hey, Terry. And uh, they starred in this as uh, Raymond Tango and Gabriel Cash, two rival LAPD cops who basically have to join forces to take on the criminal masterminds. It's kind of like a Bond villain, this Yves Perret, um, who frames them both for murder, throws them in prison, and it's about their journey to finding justice for themselves and getting Terry Hatcher out of harm's way. Yes, yes. The, the, yeah, Terry Hatcher was looking really good in this. Oh, yeah. So... We could talk about first thoughts when we first saw this film. For me, I didn't get to see it in the theatres, but I did get to see it on VHS the first day it was released. Uh, So that's a uh, close second. Did you get to see this in the theatres? I did. I did. I was actually really excited about this. Um, You know, I I love both of these actors. And you had mentioned about, you know, the whole buddy cop thing, which probably was perfected with Lethal Weapon. But I got to tell you, when it comes to buddy cop films... With Lethal Weapon being right there at the top, I think this one comes in a close second because they really 
did a good job of putting both of these different types of cops together. But the other cool thing about it was I remember when seeing trailers for this and posters, um, seeing um, Sylvester Stallone look very prim and proper in like this three piece type Armani suit, you know, and it was, it was, it was interesting because it was, it wasn't what we were used to seeing out of Sylvester Stallone as an action hero. Without a doubt, it kind of um, looks a little bit more like um, Al Pacino in this, actually, if anything. Like, he's got the real, you know, slick banker. Like, he says, you're dressed like a goddamn banker. You know, like, <laughs> what are you doing this for? <laughs> and, folks, if you're an action fan, that is, of course, Uncle Frankie from Double Impact. Uh, now, what great about this film is, yeah, it really sort of plays to the strengths of Kurt and um, throws Stallone a curveball, but it's a great curveball because it's one that... Um, I think uh, gets the most of the comedy out of here. So we're talking a little bit about the uh, the plot here, folks, and we're going to go through as we go through the plot just some of the, the the great parts. So obviously, it opens up. We get to see Raymond Tango himself doing some busts on Perrette's business, and of course, Perrette's got two um, you know basically underlings or underbosses who are struggling because of the busts all over LAPD that these two guys are doing. Obviously, Tango goes out with a big team, and it's very official. As you say, he's by the book. You know, he's very much your, your straight run of the mill, has to get things done, but it's all perfect. And then, of course, you've got Cash, who pretty much fly-by-wire, does whatever he needs to do, and he's your no-frills cop. You know, this shirt costs nine bucks. Nine bucks. Can you believe it? <laughs> you know, and I think that's the, the keen thing in this, too. So, obviously, they're doing the drug busts in um, Southern California. And when we see them, basically, in their respective police stations later, you can see that they're all over the newspapers. So, these are the top cops. Um, what do you think about that opening? What does it say about the guys, do you think? It, the opening was great because this is what's setting uh, Sylvester Stallone's character of Ray Tango different from any other action hero that he's played. And when you look back, you know, the probably the biggest action hero that he played was, of course, Rambo and um, Rocky. Mm-hmm. But when you look back at the time, okay, so we had, we had Tango and Cash come out in 89. Rambo 3 had just come out the year before in 88. And he pokes fun at himself because someone says, oh, who do you think you are? You're Rambo. And he goes, F Rambo. Rambo's a wussy, but with the P word, (laughs) you know, and so that just kind of sets the tone and he's poking fun at himself. And I always thought that was kind of fun. And, and, you know, then he finds out that one of those tanker uh, things is filled with cocaine and, uh, um, the bad guys, uh, are rolling up in a limousine slowly as, you know, as he sees what's happening. And, uh, that's where we get a peek at Jack Palance's character as Eve's Perrette, uh, talking with, uh, James Hong. And Mark Alimo is his uh, two other uh, partners in crime about how they got to do something. And then it cuts straight over to Tango and Cash where there's an assassination attempt by one of their thugs on him and, uh, you know, shoots him in the chest. But he had a vest and uh, you, you get a little shot at um, the gunplay there, including his uh, his his. His gun, his boot that's got a gun in it, <laughs> and um, so you know, and then he ends up ca- capturing that guy and getting information out of him. You know that uh, then leads to uh, this meetup that uh, Tango and Cash both meet up at at what's supposed to be some deal that's going to going down. And this is where we're introduced to Byron James' characters as uh, Tango's following him. That's right, and of course we call it Rakeen, 
as he's called. Uh, and one of the great things about this, Brian James puts on one of the worst British accents you've ever heard. I mean, it, it is appalling, but it is done in, in tongue-in-cheek, and I think that's why Is that it what it is? It, to me, it sounded like a cross... It was so bad that it sounds <laughs> like a cross between British, um, Australian, and whatever else that he was doing. <laughs> Let me tie the lovely Luke Windsor knot for you, eh? <laughs> yeah, but, but he's such a good and fun character actor. He's been in so many things. Uh, obviously, I remember him from The Fifth Element, uh, another 48 hours, and of course, as Leon in Blade Runner. And of course, Enemy Mine, where he plays the slaver at the end. Like, he's just, just brief. Oh, I forgot about that role. It's been a long time since I've seen Enemy Mine. One of those great classics. Now, what's great about this, too, is they obviously follow Rakeen, and um, in doing that, they're getting set up to be framed for murder, and where the whole thing's being tapped, uh, uh, sorry, taped by um, the guys as they come in. And, of course, the body's already there. It's already dead, and they get framed for the murder. They're locked up afterwards after a really uh, big scam in the courts, and they're put behind bars in... A general population. I, I'm guessing. Yeah, you... they were supposed to. They were supposed to go to another place that had like light security, you know. But no, they're put in major hardcore general population prison. That's right. And I, lo- I love that little line where he goes, "Yeah, I, I hear it. it's a really nice place. You can go pumping early." <laughs> <You just>, <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously, too. Then once they're in there, it's about them trying to get their way. It's kind of like the great escape, only it's just two of them escaping this time and uh, they're going to find their way out. Yeah. They get tormented. Uh, they're like taken, you know, they're taken out of their cells and they're taken downstairs, like somewhere in the basement of the prison where they're tortured. Eve's, uh, I don't know how you say his name. Eve's Perrette, Jack is, Lance's yeah. characters. He's this shadowy character in the back. That's kind of like organizing all of these prisoners. And then, uh, but then Tango and Cash uh, get saved by someone that Cash knows that's in the, uh, um, uh, I guess, the police department, but then and then arranges their escape. And, and see, this is one of the cool things I like about this film is like it's got a great three parts to it. You got the whole opening thing with the action stuff and the, intro- and the introduction to the characters. And then mm. you got like a prison film, escape film thrown in the middle of it. You yeah. know? It's like a mini lockup. In, in a way. Like yeah. They yeah. really put it in the middle there. And that's, I think, the strength of it. Because once they do get out, it's basically almost like a superhero film. You know, like they're, they're trying to, you know, save the day. It's a cross between James Bond, I find, and um, that sort of feel. Particularly, again, yeah. when they split up again, they're sort of aimed towards the same goal. So um, for a film that's probably all of 90 minutes, it really is about three movies in one. Yeah, exactly. All right, folks. So basically, that's that's what happens. And of course, in the next thirty minutes after that, it's about them taking it to Perret. And obviously, we get all the gags, all the guns, and of course, an amazing car, which we're going to talk about very soon. Well, the and what's interesting too, because you know they kind of split up a little bit, but um, Ray tells Cash, Tango tells Cash, you know, hey, meet meet up at my sister's, you know, in case anything goes bad, <laughs> yeah. and and. You're, you know, there's a great scene where um, Cash shows up at her dance club and she's doing this great dance and the cops are kind of sniffing around in order for him to escape. He has to cross dress with her as a, you know, as a woman to escape, which is great. And then but this is the cool thing about those. Both the guys are trying to find out how they were framed. You know, Cash goes to the guy that did the uh, the audio stuff and finds that tries to find out why that he faked the audio tapes and then to. 
uh, Tango goes to the, the corrupt police officer that had a hand in it as well um, before they finally meet up at Catherine's house. That's right. And a few folks too. The other guy that's in the courtroom is also the recall guy that Arnold shoots in the head in that scene in recall. He goes, I'm not here and you're not here. You know, that same oh, guy. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny how that guy turns up in both. Um, what's interesting, I think, too, is the scene afterwards when they do go back to uh, Tango's place and Kiki is there, of course, doing the massage thing. And Tango comes flying through the door when he sees uh, somebody at the door and it ends up being the captain. And the captain goes, is this the way you screen all your guests? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, um, that actor's name. Oh, what's his name? Jeffrey Lewis. Uh, yes, uh, I remember he was in the Clint Eastwood films, Every Which Way But Loose. I remember him mm. from that, and he's been in a bunch of other stuff as well. But yeah, uh, and then um, yeah, they finally they join forces and uh, decide to uh, get a little um, get a little ride first. Oh, yeah, they do. They certainly do. And, folks, we're going to be really stripping apart what that car is and, of course, the weaponry that you're going to find on it, too. But let's talk about the cast. Obviously, Sylvester Stallone plays Tango. Uh, this cop that wears Armani, shoot, uh, sorry, Armani suits makes a, a lot of money and is basically banking all of that on the stocks. Yeah, he's like, a, he's, like, he's like into stocks. And his, his boss says, why are you doing this? You make so much money doing other stuff. And he's like... Good old plane action. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously in the, in those early scenes in the station as he's putting that money down, he has a pal called Philip played by Glenn Morshower. And obviously you may know him from Under Siege, you know, this is a surprise party. That's the guy we're talking about there. <laughs> yeah. um, now, what do we, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a great role for, for Stallone. He gets to sort of play up everything he tried to do with Oscar and Stop On My Mum Will Shoot is, you know, doing comedy, but doing it well, I think. Yeah, he, he's definitely got comedy chops. And I, I think this was a perfect movie for him to do that in. You know, I'm not going to say he was good and Stop My Mom Will Shoot or, you know, whatever <laughs> the other weird comedies that he did. But this this is the type of comedy that he should stick to when it like an action comedy. Without a doubt. Kurt Russell, obviously playing Lieutenant Gabriel or Gabe Cash. Uh, and he's so basically Tango's from the west side and um, Gabe's from the east side of L.A. Uh, you know, he has a classic Corvette, wears tattered clothing, cowboy boots with Chev shotgun shells exploding from the bottom of them, obviously. Long shaggy hair, but so basically a mullet, folks. So rock and roll, cash, good on you. <laughs> yep. Yep. And has one of the biggest revolvers known to man with a telescopic sight, a Ruger GP100, which we'll go into a little bit later. Um, but what do you reckon? Russell's just doing Russell pretty much, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's um he's one of those guys that can do action and he can do comedy. He's a good-looking guy. And uh uh this I think that this was the this was one of those defining roles cuz you know, I mean obviously 2 years prior uh he did um uh I'm sorry, uh, the the Chinatown one. What's it called? Big Trouble in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China, thank you. And he's funny in that. He's charming in this. Um, but, you know, the, you need the guy, you need the scruffy guy that is the contrast to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Tango's, uh, you know, three-piece suit guy, Armani suit wearing guy and stuff, you know. Oh, definitely. And so, obviously, we've already talked about Terry Hatcher in this. I mean, she's, she's fantastic. Do we need, do, have we, do we need to keep, do we need to talk about her more? I'm, we could. Yeah. Maybe we could, we, we could spend 30 <laughs> minutes talking about her if you want. Uh, she's, she, she. <laughs> 
she actually does a fantastic job in this. I mean, you know, I mean, let's face it, she's the damsel in distress, but who can actually kick butt at the same time because she gets out and she does action as well. Yeah, you see, a, you see her introduced, uh, first of all, in the beginning of the film when she's talking to Ray in his office at the police station about how she wants to go on this dance tour eventually and he doesn't want her to leave. Um, but then you see her do that great dance sequence at the, at the, uh, at the club that uh, Cash meets up with her. Um, and I th- there's good chemistry between those two. And, uh, you know, and, and I'll say something later about this, but I would have liked to have seen more of that later on. Same. Uh, Jack Palance uh, playing Perrette, obviously the crime lord. The only thing I think missing from his performance is the one-arm push-ups. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I, he's got a great delivery, mm-hmm. you know, when he's it, – it's funny because when you watch Austin Powers and, and you see Dr. Evil – you know, tell Austin Powers when he's captured him, like, you know, I'm going to let this device kill you while I walk away and let it happen, you know? And Scott Evil's like, no, don't do that. But there's a little bit of that in this, but at least he's explaining to his fellow henchmen of why he doesn't want to kill them mm. because he wants to, he wants to disgrace them. He wants the public to uh, have distrust within the police department yes. because once once they're in prison, then they can be killed. But he wants he wants to tear them down piece by piece, just not killing them because then he turns them into martyrs. He certainly does. Now, folks, we've talked about a few of these, so we'll just we'll skip through a few till uh, the ones we haven't talked about yet. Brian James is Rakeen. Jeffrey Lewis is uh, Captain Schroeder. Eddie Bunker as Captain Holmes as Cash's superior officer in the LAPD. Of course, you might know him from Reservoir Dogs. Oh, that's right. Yeah, mm. the older guy. But you, you know what though? There's 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 a uh, there's a cinematic movie um, wonder that we're not talking about that's in this cast, and that is of course Clint Howard as Slinky. Oh yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, again, uh, one of the first villains or supposed villains, I suppose you could say, in Star Trek: The Original Series. A lot of people forget that he was. He was the yep. uh, one of the leads in that, but also you know he turns up in the, the roles that you least expect, and when they when he does turn up, he's fantastic in them. Very good character actor. James Hong as Quan, Mark Alamo as uh, Lopez, Michael J. Pollard as Owen, who's kind of like the Alfred to um, to Cash. Yes. Yeah, he's the one that uh, knows about all the gear and, and all the gadgets. Yes, that's right. Michael Jetta as uh, Floyd Skinner. Obviously, he plays the you know the nerd behind the, the keyboards, basically all the tapes and stuff like that. Uh, very famous actor. Um, uh, obviously, also Conan Robert Zdar Zdar Zdar. I hope I've said that right. Zdar. And of course, he he gets the greatest stunt at the start of the film which was actually stolen from Jackie Chan because Stallone's such a big uh, fan of his, was the police story stunt where they put the gun out the front of the truck and shoots the, the engine so the engine block stops and they come flying yes. out the windscreen. He, he's the one with the gigantic jaw, right? I loved you in Corner and a Barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, cops, bring him here. You know, that guy. <laughs> uh, uh, Louis Arquette as FBI agent Howard Weiler. Uh, Roy Brocksmith as FBI agent Gerard uh, Davis. I'm just looking through it. Now, here's one for you uh, martial arts fans. Benny Urquidez, or Benny the Jet, better known as, as Finn in this. So I'm guessing he's in some of the action scenes there. Billy Blanks as Max. And, uh, yeah, as we mentioned earlier, Glenn Morshower as Philip. So there you go, folks. A lot of 
Um, people you probably didn't realise were actually in the film now. Benny the Jet's a famous uh, kickboxer from America from yes. the 80s. Uh, you may know him also through the work of a certain actor. Let's just say uh, an actor from Gross Point Blank, you might know. Yes. <laughs> That's right. He taught that guy how to kickbox. So there you go. So knew how to fight. <laughs> um, all right, this film was known originally as The Setup, which kind of pretty much says that, you know, it's a frame-up film, which is what it is. Uh, it was based on a script by Randy Feldman uh, and an original idea by, oh boy, here we go, John Peters and Peter Goober. Did you know that? Mm. Mm. No, no, no. So the people behind, obviously, Batman and, um, you know, uh, let's just say uh, an interesting take that they, uh, I think it was, was it Peter Goober had or John Peters on Superman where they're going to have the giant spider the Jace. Ah. So, um, obviously, originally this film was going to have Sylvester Stallone and Patrick Swayze uh, star together. Well, I don't know how that would have worked. What do you reckon? Yeah, well, Patrick Swayze declined. The, he dropped out of it so he could do Roadhouse. So I'm fine with that. But, you know, I don't know if he would have had the same um, chemistry with Sylvester Stallone, but that would have been an interesting pair. Definitely. Now, Stallone had the original um, idea of obviously um, having Barry Sonnenfeld as the director of photography, but it looks like he was um, fired by Stallone in the production, and they brought in Donald Lee Thurman, who had done the movie Lock Up. So there's probably a, you know, a running sort of look, if you like, and they do look like the same film. What you have to remember this time, Sylvester Stallone was one of the most powerful actors in Hollywood at this time, and he's still pretty powerful. Mm. You know, he he would choose uh, who could direct a film or not, and you know, he would get you fired if if you got on your bad side. And you know, you, Kurt Russell had a certain. I'm sorry, um, Sylvester Stallone had a certain expectation uh, when it came to how a film was going. Hundred percent, and uh, after. Three to four months of filming, it looked like the director, Andre Konchalovsky, was actually fired by the producer, John Peters. Uh, and it was all to do with the film's end. I'm going to put that on. I'm going to put that firing on probably uh, Stallone himself. He was just like, you know, telling the producer, yeah, I don't want this guy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but they said the reason why was that um, both he and Stallone wanted to give the film a more serious and realistic tone. Uh, and as the film went along, that went against what the producers wanted to do and became to the point where they wanted to go a completely different direction, which is what the film we got now. Yep. Interesting, isn't it? Obviously, to Konchalovsky, um, you know, it was his refusal to basically um, go against the demands that John Peters had. So I'd say John Peters has a lot to answer with the tone of this film. You know, Perhaps he was more the vision of his comedic sort of beats that he wanted in this film to come across because it sounds like Konchalovsky wanted to go with a much more serious crime drama tone. Yes. Yes. Would it be less action though? Do you think? Yeah. You know, probably I think he did want a more serious film, but I think the producers and such and you know, Sylvester Stallone realized that they were kind of more onto this kind of comedy action film, you know? Mm-hmm. So the director was replaced by Albert McDonnelly, who filmed all the chase and fight scenes uh, at the ending. So you kind of, you can see a difference in the directing styles, I think, towards the end there. So that kind of makes sense. And executive producer Peter McDonald, who was the director of, obviously, uh, Rambo 3, 
um, came on uh, as the second unit director and uh, took over directing the movie before McNally was brought in. So looks like both of them had sort of fair hand in the action sequences. Yeah, the um, the direct the original director Andre he doesn't really have. Uh, I'm looking at his IMDb. He doesn't have a history of doing a lot of action films, and it takes a certain type of director to really kind of bring that to the to the big screen. The the only action film I could say that he has credit to was the runaway the 1985 tr- film Runaway Train. Ah, uh, now that was Tom Selleck. Uh, no, that was, um, uh, John Voight. That's right. And... I'm thinking Runaways or something. Run- I can't remember. It was a sci-fi yeah. one. I'm thinking must be a different Oh, one. no, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, let me double check. Run- Runaway, Runaway Train. Yeah, that's one with John Voight, Eric Roberts, Roberts, and Rebecca De Mornay. That's the one. Excellent. You're listening to Phantom Podcast Network. No, but, um, I... <laughs> Well, I've got to say, there's an actress who, um, you know, it can handle fight sequences. We remember from a certain, um, let's say, Three Musketeers film, you know? Yeah, really. I was just thinking that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, obviously, there's a legal battle uh, in this time, too, between Peter Goober and John Peters um, with the Warner Brothers studio. Uh, and um, that must have overshadowed some of the film, I'd say, too. So... Um, the film went into production in June 12, 1989, and originally was going to be wrapped at around August of the same year. So it sounds like it, this just kept delaying the film by the look of it too. So um, then it came to how bloodthirsty is this film going to be? Is it a family film and vice versa? So I think the producers were worried that they were going to give it uh, the MPEAA, so you're uh, basically the critics, uh, when they look at obviously where they're going to rate this film. Are they going to uh, rate it the same as Cobra or as Rambo? And um, right. I think that's why they probably changed some of the edits in this film to be, you know, if you feel like it's, there's more jump cuts in this movie than other movies. Well, you know, we are, you and I are talking before we started recording. One of the things that really makes this film, and he was brought in to do uh, a couple other Stallone films, is probably one of the most successful and go-to film editors in the business over the last 30 years, and that's Stuart Baird. Mm. Uh, he only has uh, three directing credits, but um, his uh, editing is, um, list is extensive. And, of course, he did Die Hard 2, Lethal Weapon 2, the original Lethal Weapon, Lady Hawk, Last Boy Scout, Demolition Man. Uh, he did Casino Royale. Salt, um, Tomb Raider, the new one. Uh, he did Skyfall. He's done so many films, and and he's been credited by a lot of people of saving films because of his editing skills. Oh, without a doubt. And I think the thing is, you know, um, with a with a credit list like that, you know, you've got somebody that you could trust with what you know what quality. Had he even of- directed the original Superman and the Omen. I'm sorry, uh, edited those films. And these are all classics. Every single one of them, absolute classics. So, you and, be- and and your good friend um, Sean Connery's Outland. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and it, of course, folks, that is Shane in space. Uh, it's a western. It really is. So, a um, yep. little bit of in trivia for that, without going too far, is that the um, the suits at the start of Outland are from Alien. There you go. Uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. That's one. <laughs> um, obviously, too, you know, you got uh, – I think the tone of this is greatly attributed to another film which probably took it as a bit of, um, I think, reference for the way that it did comedy. It was a classic that um, 
basically a friend of mine today I'm chatting to loves, and that is, of course, Demolition Man. And I think, um, mm. you know, they had to do re-edits of, of both to get them how they wanted with Warner Brothers. Obviously, they had a sort of tone that they were going for. I think that was more influenced by Lethal Weapon, I think. Yeah, and there, there's rumors of a like a Demolition Man like director's cut that I would love to see because there's there's a scenes with um, uh, Sylvester Stallone's daughter that was cut out uh, as well as some other things. But yeah, um, they definitely have that tone. Oh, without a doubt. And I think that's the thing is that you, you've got that feel in this. This is this is a buddy cop family action film. That's how I really at the end of the day everyone's brought this together too. So. Um, but I want to talk about now our favorite bits. What are, what are the things that you think are, are quintessential uh, to this film, Kevin? I mean, I look at it now. I think the the scenes when they first meet Perrette in prison, with the you know the the torture, and then them kicking the crap out of everyone, and even using um, you know a plumbing cover to smash somebody in the face, is the epitome of eighties action films. What do you think? Yes, um, but, you know, the other thing that is important to uh, specifically in 80s action films, I would agree with you, by the way, but um, the other thing, and I'm going to quote Clarence Boddicker from RoboCop, guns, 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 everybody's got guns. (laughs) (laughs) And this is no slouch when it comes to guns, this movie in particular. I mean, we've got... A lot of police-style firearms, handguns, all that sort of stuff. But we get some real beauties in this, so we're going to go through a few of these today, folks. Um, obviously, I think the Smith & Wesson uh, Model 36 Chief Special, uh, carried by Tango, is probably you know your quintessential spy little revolver, isn't it? This, this is the first gun that you see, and it's, it's a typical 38 Special gun. It's not a big gun. It's not a large caliber. But what's interesting, and, and I'm curious to find out, that he unloads the bullets that he has in there, and then he puts in... Um, another type of bullet, but you don't know what it is. So I'm assuming that it's probably like um, something that'll do a little bit more damage than what he had uh, in those cylinders prior. And of course you get those little, what are they called? The speed loaders or whatever they are. Yeah. Speed loaders. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously uh, that's one of the the main uh, firearms in this too. Obviously the Ruger GP 100 carried by, of course, Kurt in this as um, cash. Um, What do we think about this one? Uh, the one that who, that Kurt has? Yeah, the Ruger. Yeah, is that the one with the, the sight on it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it kind of looks like... I thought it was a Blackhawk um, for first glance, but it's not because there's single action. This is Yeah, okay, so this is interesting because nowadays, to have that sight on there, this, this thing is only on there as a gimmick because laser sights were kind of starting to become a thing in the 80s and because they looked cool... But the sight on that thing, that laser sight on that thing is enormous. Nowadays, they have smaller ones that are even more accurate and probably last longer. But I think this, I think that thing will actually impede your, your ability to shoot that thing. And you can't, you can't hide that thing with that. (laughs) I mean, look, look at that thing, that, that laser sight thing, that thing is enormous. So I personally, I think it's silly it was just more of a gimmick to make it look cool and him to kind of use the laser sight thing. The gun itself, the Ruger, um, is uh, is actually it's a it's a pretty cool gun. It's a three fifty seven Magnum, um, but I just think that the laser sight on it is just silly. 
Oh, it is. Um, of course, the Daytonic Scoremaster, which is the backup. I mean, would it be the other way around? Usually, you have the big one as your main main hand cannon. The forty five <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Daytonic Scoremaster, which is just huge. Um, what do we think about this one? Oh, you know, that's your typical, uh, you know, forty five style um, uh, pistol there, and uh, you know, the, these are still preferred by a lot of shootists as well. Um, they don't jam up as much, and uh, um, it's just got a classic action from the, the classic 45 ACP that this, the uh, U S military has used since well, the original 1911. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely has. And of course, which jumps us over to the British and colonial um, classic. Of course, that is John Browning's high power, nine millimeter parabellum, 13 round shot cap- case uh, capacity. And of course, I remember this from firing it uh, when I was youngster, we used to have these uh, around and they're still used by the Australian military to this day, and the SAS used in both countries. Yeah, the Browning uh, automatic. I always liked the way that thing looked, especially towards the uh, the, the firing end of the um, uh, the barrel. But I remember the Browning um, learning about that gun when I saw the first um, Beverly Hills Cop. Axel mm-hmm. Foley's character uses a Browning. It's a nickel plated one, uh, but I always thought it looked kind of cool. Yeah, they are. And, and again, they're very reliable. I mean, again, I've used one, so I know. <laughs> um, well, the PPK is also used by one of the bad guys in this film as well. And also is one that's used by, I think it's the one that um, they say is, hey, that's my gun by cash. Yes, the, that's the one that is used to frame them because that is uh, Cash's gun. When he comes back uh, from... The, from almost getting killed by the assassin in the beginning, he picks up his gun out of the uh, uh, drawer and someone had messed with the sights and it was the gun that was used to kill the person uh, later on. So. Hey, can you remember what he says just before he talks about his gun? Uh, which one? That gun? Yeah, yeah, he goes, whoa, 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 pizza! Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also have uh, mini Uzis in this one. So... As Kevin and I just talked off air, it's probably not the one um, that a lot of people have seen around the place, except for maybe Delta Force. Yes, yeah, the Mini Uzis. Um, you know, there, and there's different types too. There's the Mini Uzi with the folding stock that the like the the metal wire folding stock, which is this one here. Uh, my favorite is the one that uh, Chuck Norris uses in. Um, uh, Invasion USA, because he's got the custom holsters on there with the 20-round magazines. Uh, but they still do have one of those micro mini Uzis um, that Byron James' character uses in this as well. He use, he has the one with the 32-round magazine. That's right. Now, obviously, one of the other ones is a made-up firearm. Well, it's a real firearm. The firing part of it was a modified HK MP5A4. And, of course, this ends up being one that's been basically turned into a movie gun, so not a real gun. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think they wanted to make uh, Jack Palance's character like on the cutting edge of weaponry. <laughs> and there's a there's a few made up. There's a few made up guns here. And we'll talk about the uh, the RV from hell. That's got a made up uh, a Gatling gun on it. But it's interesting that they take a regular uh, uh, Heckler and Koch uh, MP5 and they put these other attachments on it to make it look like extra special. You know, it's almost it's one step away from that gun that uh, that Zerg uses in uh, Fifth Element. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and it really is like um, even the rate of fire that you hear is a, 
instead of the, the high rate of fire of an MP5, you hear this. So it's even trying to make the nine millimeter uh, bullet itself sound bigger. Yes. Which is crazy. Let's get to it. Let's talk about this RV. We've been hearing about it all the time. The RV from hell. What do we think of Owen's car? Oh, this is one of my, I think it's one of the, my favorite underrated movie cars because it looks so cool. Uh, there's a great line in there too. I think it's, uh, I, don't, I think it's Cash that says it. Maybe it's Tango saying, who holds the pink slip, Satan? <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and so I got a little information on the, on the car. It's uh, the tank-like SUV seen in the film, and this is at the end of the film, with a windshield shape resembling a 1990s era Chevrolet Lumina minivan was built from a 19... 19- 1988 Chevrolet K2500 truck. At the time of the film's release, the vehicle resembled a GM concept, a 1987 Chevrolet Blazer, which was planned as a crossover-like SUV, which was powered with a Chevrolet 4.3-liter V6 engine block and cylinder heads that were cast in aluminum alloy. GM did not proceed with the Blazer X1 uh, XT1 but its styling cues were used with the W-body Dustbuster minivans, Lumina Oldsmobile Silhouette, and the Pontiac Transport. Um, and this is one of those special gadgets that, uh, what's his name? Um, Owen. It's a friend of, uh, uh, Owen um, does for uh, a cash. And uh, it's pretty cool looking. I, I love this thing. It's got the big Gatling gun on the side, but... It, one of those things that happens with these cool cars is you see them get destroyed, and I hate that. <laughs> yeah, you kind of like you wish this one made it through. And every time I've looked at it, uh, watching the movie, I always think of this car like the BA Baracus's big van from uh, A Team. Right. You know, it's got that. But same much deal. cooler. <laughs> oh, this is this is way cool. I mean, I kinda... you have to you have to give the A Team maybe the better paint job, but this one, man, this one just looks so cool. This one looked like you know it could just mess up any other car on the roads, <laughs> you know, and it helps that it has a big old Gatling gun too. So yeah, it's kind of like a like a roving gunship, isn't it? I mean, really, it, it's got yeah, all that pretty sort of much stuff to it. So yeah, you know, and, and to be honest, it's going up against those massive earth uh, moving vehicles, you know, so. It's it's get, gets a bit of a squash. Yeah, those uh, those two big um, uh, construction trucks that uh, start to squish them, squish it in the middle of it. And, uh, I was just like, oh man, uh, <laughs> you know. And, and it's too, you know, and it's like it reminded me of that awesome car that uh, uh, Mercury that um, uh, in Stallone's movie Cobra that he has. It also gets destroyed. I'm like, oh man, stop destroying the damn cars. <laughs> Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's a one-of-a-kind. There's nothing else quite like it out there, folks. Um, but in wrapping up, what are our final thoughts of this film? Uh, I think one of the great things is it really is, for me, um, an epitome, not only of buddy cop movies, but to have all those actors in one film, especially as some of those were turning into the 1990s, they got bigger roles and um, probably even more high-profile uh, as we went through. I think this is really a benchmark for the period, for the action films itself, and for Stallone and Russell, uh, regardless of it not going the way that they wanted as far as being a serious film versus the sort of more theme park action movie. Um, It's a success, I think. What do you reckon? I agree, too. It's one of those films that I think, you know, a lot of my friends that know that I rewatch it and they rewatch it, and and it's a... it's a just it's a charming film. It's mm. it's got a great cast, great chemistry between the two. 
And this is one of those films that falls under an important category of a list that I would love to maybe do a podcast about of films that deserved a sequel. Oh, yes. I was not ready to see Tango and Cash not ever be seen again. Uh, We we got it close with Guardians of the Galaxy 2, but Mm -hmm. they never shared a scene together. (laughs) Oh, 100%. They were were both in that film, but they never shared a scene together. And I I wish that uh, they could have – just because these characters are so fun and likable and – you know, and and I would and going back to um, Cash's uh, um, relationship with yeah. uh, Kiki uh, Terry Hatcher's character, I would have loved to have seen that that relationship de- develop. You know, and Owen could have come back and be in their their uh, their weapons specialist guy again. You know, like their version of of Q from Bond. You know, and uh, I just I would have loved to have seen. Um, what else they could have done with that? Because that would have been a lot of fun. This could have been a franchise. You I know? think so too. Yeah, it really is an American Bond. You, you've kind of nailed it. Like, um, but it's a buddy cop Bond. You know, and we've got yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've got sort of the best of that and comedy sort of wrapped into one. And I think you could have just kept having you know uh, bad guys of the Palance sort of era. Maybe even get Jack Nicholson as a bad guy next. You know, uh, rotating bunch of whatever villains you know um but that's that's the great thing it could have been anything but from what i yeah, hear and it would have been great to, it would have been great to see tango have a love interest as well you know i think yeah. that would be cool and i think would have been interesting if it was the other way around just like they sort of you know like uh, obviously cash is going for a, a woman that's probably a bit bit tidier than he usually goes for and it should be in the other way around for tango tango finds somebody on um russell's level too because then just shows that it's all more about character and personality and stuff like that too but folks i want to um thank you all for listening tonight uh it's a it's a wonderful film go and check it out if you haven't already get it on blu-ray and from what i hear kurt russell and sylvester stallone are still at this stage happy to maybe do another one that's right so you know it's been out there that long um, I remember seeing something about an interview. They were asked, is there a Tango Cash coming? Well, there's been a script, but nothing else. So there you go. So at yeah. least they've been talking about. So, But anyway, to all of you out there, I wish you a um, good evening, and we'll catch you very soon here on the, the uh, network. And I want to thank Kev for coming on the show tonight and chatting all about this amazing film. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. it was, uh, it's always fun to uh, talk action films with you, brother. Awesome, thank you. And folks, there is another Kevin, believe it or not, here tonight. And he's going to take it away with a great extended promo where we're going to chat about all the great shows. Take it away, Kevin. Thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. We'd like to continue to feed your ears by inviting you to listen to our other awesome shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. It starts with our flagship show, Culture Clash, our weekly pop culture podcast. For you movie fans, we have Couch Potato Theater, where we celebrate our favorite cult classic and guilty pleasure movies. We also have Time Warp. That's our fandom flashback show, where we like to look back on our favorite fandoms. For you NFL fans, we have the End Zone podcast. And of course, for you Alfred Hitchcock fans, please check out Good Evening. For you Star Trek and Orville fans, we also have the Union Federation podcast. And for you hard rock metal fans, we have Hair Metal, the 1980s rock metal podcast. Doctor Who fans, we've got one for you as well. We have Type 40, our Doctor Who podcast. If you're a fan of 1980s action films, please check out Lethal Mullet. And our newest show, we have a Star Wars podcast called What a Piece of Junk. 
You can enjoy all of these great Fandom Podcast Network shows on our master feed at fpnet.podbean.com. The FPNet can also be found on the Podbean app. The Fandom Podcast Network can also be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Please search on Facebook for Fandom Podcast Network. You can also email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram and Twitter under Fandom Podcast Network. Thank you for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom.